Hello, and welcome to the Blue Rose Film Podcast, a show dedicated to celebrating the mystery and transcendence of cinema and tracing film history through the decades via the films that have meant the most to me. My name is John T. Cornford, and I'm a writer, editor, composer, music producer, and a lover of films. Given that the title of this show comes from this film, and that this film is turning 30 this year, it seems like an absolute no-brainer for me to dive into it this early on in the show. It's a film that was almost universally hated by both audiences and critics when it hit theatres, and has only recently been reappraised by general audiences as an incredibly important part of this filmmaker's body of work. It contains some of the most memorable and striking film images of the 90s, and continues to confound and mesmerise audiences today. I'm of course talking about David Lynch's highly anticipated cinematic continuation of the Twin Peaks story, 1992's Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. I came to Twin Peaks relatively late, having already seen most of Lynch's films into my late teens and being completely engrossed by them. I knew that Twin Peaks was an important part of Lynch's body of work, but not really being a TV guy, I'd put off watching it for the longest time. But eventually, I dived in, and without wanting to sound too overdramatic, I was never the same. I now hold Twin Peaks as possibly my favourite cinematic story, let's call it, across its two original series, the film we're going to be talking about today, and then the revolutionary and bone-chilling Twin Peaks The Return in 2017. For me, David Lynch and Twin Peaks represents everything that I love about the cinematic art form. It is storytelling that uses the medium to its advantage and fullest potential, and it understands that lingering mystery and unresolved discomfort are the things that stay with us after the credits roll, asking us to continue to wrestle with the work long after we see it and confront parts of ourselves and each other that we might otherwise be too afraid to touch. Watching Twin Peaks for the first time as a late teenager was a huge moment for me in discovering my taste in narrative and film. It was all I could think about, and it gripped my imagination in a way that I had forgotten that stories could. The way that stories feel like entire worlds to you when you're a young child. The way that they can interact with your emotions and fears at a gut level, hardwired to the sacred, vulnerable child that we all cherish deep down in the deepest recesses of our being. And when it came to this feeling in Twin Peaks, this was almost entirely driven by the mystery at the heart of the show the question that was on everyone's lips in the early 1990s. Who killed Laura Palmer? Not only is this question central to the mystery of Twin Peaks, but it's also central in understanding the history of the show leading up to this film's release. Usually, here we would dive into a recap, but with Twin Peaks, things are never that simple. So first, a brief overview of the events leading up to the original series premiere in 1990 before we dive into the film. And a spoiler warning for all of Twin Peaks. We spoil every movie that we talk about on this podcast, but I'm also going to be talking about key plot points from the original show, the 2017 revival, and even some of the supplementary materials, like the books. You have been warned.
Filmmaker David Lynch was hot on the success of films like Elephant Man and Blue Velvet and was hired by a Warner Brothers executive to direct a film about Marilyn Monroe. He looks back on this and remembers being, quote, sort of interested. He says in Lynch on Lynch, a book of interviews conducted by Chris Rodley, I loved the idea of this woman in trouble, but I didn't know if I liked it being a real story. It's on this project that he first met writer Mark Frost, with whom he worked on the screenplay. Although this film was ultimately dropped by Warner Brothers, it was this interaction that led to David Lynch and Mark Frost's working relationship, even laying some of the thematic seeds for what was to come later. Their next project together was another film doomed to never make it through production, a Steve Martin comedy called One Saliva Bubble. At this point, he is asked to consider making a TV show by his agent, Tony Krantz. Lynch had no interest and dismissed the idea immediately. The story goes that Krantz took Lynch to a Nibbler's restaurant in Los Angeles and expressed interest in Lynch operating in a similar area to that which he explored in Blue Velvet, a show about real life in America. Although he still had little to no interest in the idea, Lynch decided to humour his agent and began loosely collaborating on the project with Mark Frost. After a number of initial ideas about a small-town-based television series, they settled on the idea of a town based around a lumber mill. After that came the image of a body washing up on the shore of a lake. Frost remembers that he and Lynch came up with the notion of the girl next door leading a desperate double life that would end in murder. Frost and Lynch pitched the idea to ABC during the 1988 Writers Guild of America strike, emphasising the central murder mystery and the blend of soap opera and police procedural. After the successful pitch, ABC liked the idea and asked the two of them to write a pilot episode. A full script would materialise ten days later. This pilot was shot in 1989 on a $4 million budget, under the understanding that an extra ending was to be shot in case the pilot was never picked up. This way the pilot could be repurposed into a direct-to-video feature film in Europe. After ABC executive Rob Iger struggled for weeks to get it over the line with the other network executives, ABC eventually bought seven episodes at $1.1 million each. Each episode took about a week to shoot, and after directing the first two episodes, Lynch left to complete work on Wild at Heart. When the pilot aired in April of 1990, over 34 million people tuned in. Twin Peaks was huge. And again, at the centre of the mystery is this question. Who killed Laura Palmer? By the time the first season finished, audiences were seemingly no closer to finding out the answer to that question, and pressure was beginning to build from executives demanding answers. Audiences wanted to know. Lynch and Frost knew, however, that as soon as that question was answered, the mystery would be over, and nobody would care about Twin Peaks anymore. The magic would vanish. Despite this, on November 10th, 1990, Season 2, Episode 7 titled Lonely Souls, aired to 17.2 million viewers, revealing that Leland Palmer, Laura's father, under the influence of the demonic entity known as Bob, was responsible for the murder of Laura Palmer. The episode was directed by Lynch himself, and it is one of the most haunting and disturbing episodes of primetime television ever broadcast. But Lynch and Frost were right. From that point on in the series... Not only did viewership steadily decline, but the narrative lost all momentum. Lynch himself has expressed his complete dissatisfaction with the second season of the show after episode 7. The show eventually seemed to be limping to a premature end, being put on indefinite hiatus before the completion of season 2. A fan-led letter campaign saw the show return to the air for four weeks in March of 1991, but it was then put on hiatus again. In June of 1991, the final two episodes would air back-to-back, and that seemed to be the end of it. Despite Lynch returning to the director's chair for the finale and pulling out all the stops in an episode that remains today as one of the original series' finest and seemed to suggest that there was more story to be told, Twin Peaks was over. This is where today's film, Fire Walk With Me, comes into the picture. Twin Peaks was no longer a cultural phenomenon, but fans were dying to know what happened next. There were a number of huge cliffhangers that would seemingly be forever unresolved, 
the most notable of which was the fact that Coop was stuck in the eerie Black Lodge, replaced by his evil doppelganger. Lynch was bruised and pissed off by his experience working on the show, but never felt like he was done with those characters, particularly the one who was at the heart of Twin Peaks from the start, Laura Palmer. Despite the fact that Aaron Spelling Productions wanted to make a third season of the show, Lynch and Spelling Productions decided to conclude the series with a trilogy of films, securing a $75 million three-film deal with French company CB2000. The first film was announced a month after the show was cancelled. And now, a recap of the story of Twin Peaks' Firewalk With Me. In case we needed any reminder of how David Lynch felt about his time working in TV, we open on a TV, filled with static, being smashed with a sledgehammer. A body floats down a river, wrapped in plastic. It's the body of Teresa Banks. FBI Chief Gordon Cole sends Special Agent Chester Desmond and rookie Sam Stanley to investigate in the small town of Deer Meadow. Before leaving, they're introduced to Lil at the airport, a woman wearing a red jacket with a blue rose attached to the front pocket. She gives them a number of cryptic clues that Desmond later explains to Stanley as being key and sensitive information as to the nature of the case being investigated. When Stanley asks about the Blue Rose, however, Desmond refuses to explain. Once they arrive in Deer Meadow, they're greeted by a hostile police force who are reluctant to cooperate. The two agents examine the body of Teresa Palmer in the morgue, noting that a ring is missing from her left ring finger. Under her fingernail, they also find a small piece of paper with the letter T printed on it. When they later eat at the local diner, Irene, the woman who serves them, recalls that Teresa's left arm went numb before she died. The two then go to search Teresa's trailer, introducing us to Carl, the manager of the Fat Trout trailer park. Inside Teresa's trailer, they notice a photo of her wearing a strange ring. Later that afternoon, Desmond returns to the trailer park alone and finds Teresa's ring, a golden ring with a large green stone on a mound of dirt under a trailer. He reaches out to take the ring and the film freezes. We cut to the FBI officers in Philadelphia. Special Agent Dale Cooper tells Gordon Cole about a foreboding dream that he had about this very day. Suddenly, after Coop seemingly appears frozen in place on the surveillance cameras, the long-lost special agent Philip Jeffries materialises out of one of the elevators. In an uncomfortable and jarring sequence, he rambles to them about visions that he has had about a meeting place for spirits above a convenience store. He also refuses to talk about Judy. Who Judy is and what her importance is remains a mystery to both the other agents and the audience. We briefly see this vision, including the man from another place, Bob, Mrs. Chalfont and her grandson, and the jumping man, before Jeffrey screams and vanishes. Upon learning that Special Agent Chet Desmond has disappeared, Cole sends Cooper out to Deer Meadow to investigate. Other than finding his abandoned vehicle, Coop finds nothing. We then jump forward a year to the town of Twin Peaks, where we follow a teenage Laura Palmer in the last week of her life. We see that she is using cocaine and cheating on her boyfriend Bobby Briggs with James Hurley. When she discovers the pages from her diary have been removed, she gives the rest of the diary to her agoraphobic friend Harold for safekeeping. Outside Laura's job at the Double R Diner, Mrs. Chalfont and her grandson appear to Laura, offering her a framed painting and telling her to hang it in her room. They also warn her that the man behind the mask is in her bedroom. She runs home where she sees Bob behind her dresser in her room. After fleeing, she then sees her father, Leland, leave the house. That night, she hangs the picture on her wall. In her dream, she enters through the doorway in the painting and into the Black Lodge. Both Coop and the man from another place appear to her. The man from another place identifies himself as the arm and offers her Teresa's jade ring. 
Coop warns her not to take it. Laura then sees Annie Blackburn next to her in bed, covered in blood. She tells Laura to write in her diary that Good Dale is stuck in the lodge and can't leave. Laura then sees the ring in her hand, but when she wakes up, it's gone. We see that Laura is working as an underage prostitute, and one night begrudgingly lets her best friend Donna come along with her to the roadhouse on a job. They then cross the Canadian border with two men, and they run into Ronette Pulaski. She tells them about Teresa Banks' murder, before Laura sees Donna, drugged and topless. She grabs her, and they both leave. Laura begging Donna not to turn out like her. The one-armed man drives past Leland and Laura the next morning, yelling at Leland and showing Teresa's jade ring on his pinky finger. Leland briefly remembers his affair with the young prostitute Teresa Banks. He had asked Teresa to set up a foursome with some of her other friends, but fled upon glimpsing that Laura was amongst those friends. Teresa realised who he was and threatened to blackmail him, leading to his decision to murder her. Leland and the one-armed man yell at each other and rev their engines, causing Laura great distress before the one-armed man speeds away. That night, Laura and Bobby go out into the woods to pick up drugs. They are approached by Deputy Cliff, who draws a gun. But Bobby draws his gun too, killing Cliff. The next night, Bob comes to Laura again. Laura has been using cocaine, and Bob comes in through her bedroom window and assaults her. When she asks who he is, Bob reveals himself to be her father, Leland Palmer. Bobby decides that Laura is just using him for cocaine and breaks up with her. She meets James at night and she attempts to reach out to him, only James doesn't understand her cryptic cries for help. She ends her relationship with him, too, and runs off into the woods to a cabin where Ronat Pulaski, Leo Johnson and Jacques Renault are waiting. The four begin to do cocaine together, and have sex. Jacques ties Laura up against her will, forcing himself on her, despite her cries to be untied. Leland shows up and beats Jacques unconscious. Leo flees and Leland takes Laura and Ronette to an abandoned train car. When Laura asks Leland if he's going to kill her, Bob appears and says that he wants to be her, to taste with her mouth. He knocks Ronette unconscious, and when it seems like he is primed to possess the body of Laura Palmer, the one-armed man, who presumably followed Leland into the forest, throws the jade ring into the train car. Laura puts it on her left ring finger. Enraged, Bob kills Laura. Possessed Leland wraps her body in plastic and floats it down the river. The two pass into the red room. Laura's dead body is discovered and unwrapped by local Twin Peaks police. In the red room, Agent Cooper stands next to Laura and comforts her. She sees an angel floating above her and cries, tears of joy. And I'll see you And you'll I must admit, the first time I saw this film was immediately after finishing the original series, and at the time, I understood why people were upset by it. I went into it expecting a continuation of Twin Peaks, both in narrative and tone, but it fails on both those counts. Of course, the film isn't even attempting to satisfy those two audience demands. This is a film about the last days of Laura Palmer, and as such, the film takes on a much more sombre, melancholy tone. 
The opening act in Deer Meadow is as close as the film comes to reliving some of the quirky, offbeat, small-town humour, but beyond that, this is much more in line tonally with where a large majority of 2017's Twin Peaks The Return would later come to further elaborate on. Another major difference between this film and the show is the way that it depicts sexuality, drug use, and violence. All of those things were present in the show, only they were implied or alluded to. But as we look into the tragic and contradictory life of Laura Palmer, those things are front and centre, depicted surprisingly bluntly and without much restraint. Because of this, and the film's non-answers to so many of the nagging questions left by the show, I initially found the film incredibly frustrating. But upon a rewatch, almost immediately after first watching it, I was able to see the film for what it actually is, not for what people wanted it to be, myself included. This is the Laura Palmer story. This is a tribute to the character at the heart of Twin Peaks, and whose death, both literally and in her killer's reveal, is the single most important event in the Twin Peaks timeline. Without Laura, Twin Peaks would not exist, a statement that takes on new life in the wake of season three. And we saw what Twin Peaks looked like after her presence was removed from the show, after her enduring mystery was wrapped up for audiences in season two. It sucked. Twin Peaks without Laura was a shell of its former self, something Lynch and Frost were intensely aware of. Her contradictions and her secrets were the DNA out of which the show was grown, beautiful and angelic on the outside, while slowly dying on the inside. Having seen the film many times, I saw it on the big screen for the first time back in 2021. When the closing credits finally rolled, there was a stunned silence that sat thick in the screening room for the length of the credits and long after the lights came back up. Nobody moved. Everyone in that room felt the weight and the tragedy of her story. This tells you what this film is. It isn't a wacky small town sitcom. This is a psychological horror film about real life horror. Underage prostitution, drug use, sexual assault, incest. This is Lynch trying to restore Laura's dignity by allowing us to empathise with her life and death, to see her as more than just a plot device. Twin Peaks is Laura, and Laura is Twin Peaks. Actress Cheryl Lee returned from her time on the show as both Laura Palmer and her cousin, Maddie Ferguson, to give what I think is one of the most criminally underrated performances of the 1990s. There are plenty that would say that her performance was snubbed at the Oscars, but besides the fact that the Oscars have never paid much regard to genre films, the public flogging that this film endured meant that it was never really in the conversation to start with. While her role in the show was initially simply as Laura's dead body, and to play her in flashbacks and old videotapes, Lynch loved her as an actress so much that he wrote in the character of Maddie Ferguson. She is brilliant in the time that she has on the show, but for her to return and portray Laura in full, and in all of her tragic contradictions, it really does feel like this character was finally done properly. Her performance is a total roller coaster, From the depths of paralytic fear, to drug and booze-fueled sensuality, to mean-spirited snarkiness, to moments of pure pain and earnestness, her performance literally has it all. It is emotional nakedness at a level that is immediately either heartbreaking or repellent for audiences. For me, it's the beating heart of the film that pulls me into it, and I'm reminded of just how good Cheryl Lee was as an actress every time I rewatch it. The bar scene, I remember on the day that we were filming, there was very loud music, and I remember David using music a lot. I feel like there were times even when, if there wasn't going to be a lot of dialogue in the scene, he could use the music up until a certain point. He understood what a helpful tool that was, especially in a scene like that in a bar. Yeah, that music, that whole environment felt like what it was supposed to feel like. That was not an easy day's work for, for many, many, many reasons. Thank goodness that the crew that David hires and the other actors that he brings in um, are all very, very respectful. And 
You know, in, in order to do a scene like that, there are very specific things that have to happen. You know, it's like this has to happen on this line or this has to happen on this line or this has to happen. But then at the same time, because of the state that Laura's in, there is this whole other place that one has to go mentally and emotionally, which is in the opposite direction of being of specifics. So um, it's, it's being able to um, find the way in with the awareness of both of those things. One actor that fans were dying to see more of in this film was fan favourite Kyle McLaughlin as Special Agent Dale Cooper. McLaughlin had also appeared in two other David Lynch films before his career-defining role in Twin Peaks, the ill-fated Dune film and the off-putting neo-noir thriller Blue Velvet. In regard to the impact that McLaughlin had already had on his films, Lynch once said in a GQ story, Kyle plays Innocence who are interested in the mysteries of life. He's the person that you trust enough to go into a strange world with. When it came to reprising the role of Dale Cooper in Fire Walk With Me, however, he was initially cautious and worried that it would lead to him being typecast into one role for the rest of his career. Lynch has said that approximately 25% of the original cast were not supportive of the idea of a prequel film, and amongst the naysayers were Cheryl and Fenn, Lara Flynn Boyle, and most significantly, Kyle MacLachlan. The script, as initially conceived, relied heavily on the presence of Special Agent Dale Cooper, and on July 11th of 1991, Ken Scherer, the CEO of Lynch Frost Productions, announced that the project would not be going ahead due to McLaughlin's refusal to participate. Lynch is a master at adapting to any boundaries that are placed on him, however, and he revised the script to introduce new FBI agents, played by Chris Isaac and Kiefer Sutherland, and moved forwards. McLaughlin eventually reconsidered, however, and agreed to be in the film, but this is why his presence in the film is greatly reduced from his place as the central character in the original show. And while we're talking about actors in the film, we have to talk about the late David Bowie. There's no doubt about it, his scene is disjointed and confusing, although it does receive some much-needed context in The Missing Pieces, something that we'll talk about shortly. The character is a walking contradiction, a quantum puzzle of a character at once present and at another, moving in another sphere, even walking through Cooper in one particular scene. While this seemingly singular scene sticks out like a sore thumb amongst the rest of the film, it has retrospectively become one of the most important moments in the Twin Peaks timeline. We get the mystery of Judy introduced for the first time. We get the first look at the convenience store and crucial information about the Black Lodge and its inhabitants. But perhaps even more crucially, we get this line... Who do you think this is there? And this line. And this dream. We live inside a dream. In the world of Twin Peaks, statements like that are never as simple as what they appear on first glance. But this one scene and its central performance from Bowie have taken on a talismanic quality in the Twin Peaks continuity, becoming a sort of Rosetta Stone for endless theorising and discussing the deeper meaning and mythology of the story. While some have criticised his performance and his accent, I actually think that his performance is exactly what it needs to be. It's off-putting, confusing, uncomfortable, and hugely enigmatic. The casting of Bowie as Philip Jeffries is not a minor detail, either. While saving this discussion for a later episode dedicated to Twin Peaks The Return, there is a meta-layer to Twin Peaks that runs thick through its continuity, and has done since the pilot. Given that this scene happens directly after Special Agent Chet Desmond, a character played by another well-known musician, seemingly disappears and, depending on who you ask, traverses levels of reality, the appearance of Bowie in this role enriches and underlines the narrative's relationship with the real world, our world. It's a stronger relationship that you might initially give it credit for. When people talk about this film today, one of the things that always comes up is the score, by frequent Lynch collaborator, Angelo Badalamenti. Badalamenti had already worked with Lynch before on Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart, as well as Twin Peaks. And while this interview has been memed to death, I think it still serves as the perfect explanation of the importance Badalamenti's music plays in Lynch's work. This is the keyboard that 
all the major themes were created for Twin Peaks. It's an old Fender Rhodes and um, kind of beat up. And David would sit right over here, right to the right of me, and we would put a little cassette just about over here on this keyboard, just keep it in record and just keep it playing. David would sit here and I'd say, well, what do you see, David? What is, just talk to me. And David would say, okay, Angelo, <clears throat> we're in a dark woods now. And there's a soft wind blowing through some sycamore trees. And uh, there, there's, there's a moon out and there's some animal sounds in the background. And, and you can hear the hoot of an owl. And you're in the dark woods, you know, just, just get me into that beautiful darkness with the soft wind and I started playing and David would say Angelo that's great I love that that's a good mood but can you play it slower and I'd say well, slower David okay and I'd go That's it. That's a good tempo. Just keep it going slow like that. Just keep that going for a while. And in David's mind, you can, you can just see that he was visualizing the description that he envisioned. Then he would say, Okay, Angelo, now we gotta make a change because from behind a tree in the back of the woods, there's this very lonely girl. Her name is Laura Palmer. And it's very sad, but get something that matches her. And, and, I, and I just segued into this. beautiful. I could see her. And she's walking towards the camera and she's coming closer. Just keep building it. Just keep building it. And she's getting close. Now reach some kind of climax. And I would go, and he said, oh, that's it. Oh, that's so beautiful. Angelo. Oh, that's tearing my heart out. I love that, just keep that going. Now, she's starting to leave. So fall down, keep falling, keep falling, keep falling. Now go back into the dark woods. That's it, keep going. got up, gave me a big hug. He said, Angelo, that's Twin Peaks. I said, okay, David, I'll go home and I'll work on it. He said, Angelo, don't do a thing and don't change a signal note. I see Twin Peaks. And that's how it was done. His work on the original series remains iconic to this day, and cues do reappear in Fire Walk With Me but some of the work that he does exclusively for Firewalk With Me stands tall amongst his work, not just for Twin Peaks, but across his body of work. His song Sycamore Trees, that we heard earlier, sung by Jimmy Scott, is indicative of the spine-tingling mystery of Twin Peaks, and the track that plays during Laura and Donna's trip to the Roadhouse is one of my all-time favourite film score moments. It drowns out all the dialogue, which appears in subtitles, and just moves the audience to the same heightened hysteria that the characters are experiencing in that moment. Enjoy this short clip of The Pink Room by Angelo Badalamenti.
A story from Angelo Badalamenti about working with David Lynch on Firewalk With Me. We were recording a song called A Real Indication, and David was in the recording booth. He'd written a lyric that called for some kind of vocal improvisation, and I thought, I don't give a damn, I'm just going to go for it and do something that's really not me. I'm going to be outrageous. I ran the gamut of nuttiness, yelling and ad-libbing, and David was laughing so hard he got a hernia and wound up needing surgery. Some of Lynch's most effective horror sequences also appear in this film. In a filmography littered with iconic moments of terror. The winky scene in Mulholland Drive. The horrific climax of A Race Ahead. Laura Dern's moment of transformation in Inland Empire. It's a testament to the power of Firewalk With Me that it stands out as terrifying as it is. The editing in the lead up to Laura's moment with Harold is masterfully done. As she breaks down to Harold, the pace of the film and the swelling score tells us that something scary is about to happen, so we shouldn't be shocked when it does. But regardless, Lynch pulls the rug out from underneath us. Mm-hmm. Laura! me since I was 12. And the diary was hidden too well. There is no other person who could have known where it was. He comes in through my window at night. He's real. He's getting to know me now. He speaks to me. What does Bob say? He says he wants to be me or he'll kill me. No. No. Yes! Yes! What? 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 reveal of Bob's identity to Laura and the preceding scene that is essentially a home invasion rape sequence is intensely uncomfortable and psychologically violent, as it should be. Christine McKenna writes in Room to Dream that people were addicted to Twin Peaks and wanted more of it, and they got a David Lynch film instead. Firewalk With Me is dark and unrelenting, and it made people angry. This scene is the perfect example of that. The implied incest and sexual assault at the nucleus of the show had always remained that, implied, until now. And, as it should be, it is horrifying and awful to watch. But it is the horror aesthetic of this film and the refusal to pull any punches that was so important to Lynch, who felt like Laura's death by murder was treated by audiences as just another weekly piece of entertainment that they wanted resolved so that they could move on to the next one. Laura was, and is, as far as Lynch is concerned, a real person, and her trauma and murder were not to be treated as light entertainment. The pilot dwelled on the grief and trauma her death caused her community, and Fire Walk With Me gives her the dignity and the respect for her trauma to resonate fully on screen. Mysticism has always been a part of what made Twin Peaks so enduring. Lynch's work has always had a sense of unanswered ambiguity about it, and Fire Walk With Me is no different. 
A key image in Twin Peaks is the Red Room, a concept first introduced into Twin Peaks continuity in Episode 3 of Season 1. It's also sometimes known as the Waiting Room, and is, depending on who you ask, either a part of the Black Lodge itself, or simply a space leading to the Black Lodge, a sort of gateway. A key spirit who lives in the Black Lodge is the Arm. Something we see for the first time in this film, however, is the meeting room above the convenience store and the Formica table. One detail that many viewers may have missed is that on the green Formica table there is a piece of Formica missing, as if it has been scooped out. This missing chunk of Formica is roughly the same size and shape as the green stone on Teresa's jade ring that Laura wears at the end of the film. Why is this important? Well, the ring is another key piece of lore introduced in this film. It seems that once Laura puts the ring on, Bob is unable to possess her and resorts to killing her out of anger. What about a golden ring with a Formica stone would stop a spirit from possessing you? Well, as it turns out, Formica is a great insulator of electricity. Electricity, of course, being very important to how the spirits move from one world to the other. So what does this all mean? Well, if you ask me, the ring is a ticket back into the lodge, and it protects the wearer from malevolent spirits by insulating them from the forces of demonic presences like Bob. But if that's so, then why did Coop warn Laura not to take the ring in her dream? Also, do the numbers that appear in the film mean anything? When Philip Jeffries enters the Philadelphia office, he does so through an elevator with a very specific number 7 attached to it. A number six, in the same style, appears on a telephone pole in the Fat Trout trailer park, where Chet Desmond disappears. Do these numbers suggest specific portals or doorways between realities? Does this then suggest the existence of more of these doorways? And what's the significance of the fact that the trailer under which Desmond finds the ring is owned by Chalfont? The show seemed to imply that Leland Palmer's actions were entirely driven by Bob, and that he was not responsible for his crimes. But here in the film, that doesn't seem so clear anymore. Did Leland have the potential to be a monster and an abuser all on his own? How much of his actions were his own, and how much were Bob's? Does that even matter? These are just a handful of the questions that the film leaves with its viewers. And for those unfamiliar with David Lynch's work, this is sort of the point. And don't bother going to Lynch himself for answers either, because he is notoriously tight-lipped about providing explanations for his work. One of the recurrent images in your films is of electricity arcing, is of you know light bulbs crackling on, and you have a you have a recurrent motif of you know like two points and something arcing between them, and it seems to me that this somehow relates to what you think about the synaptic arcs in our brain. When you talk about TM, when you talk about this thing, you talk about making connections. It seems to me that that's what that recurrent visual motif is about. And I know you hate saying what things mean in your films, but am I right in thinking that that's at least in the right area. No. <laughs> for many, this intentional ambiguity is nothing but frustrating. But for me, it's one of the main reasons why his work holds up today as important pieces of film history, especially when it comes to Twin Peaks. Again, not to get too ahead of myself, given that we're going to be talking about this show in another episode, but in Twin Peaks The Return, we get to see what Twin Peaks looks like when all the answers are given to us and it isn't pretty. In fact, as is so often the case in real life, we look back in retrospect and wish that we'd never actually even asked the question in the first place. Film critic Mark Kermode often states that a good film is like a prism and that it will reflect back to you whatever you bring to it. This is especially true of David Lynch's films, and that prismatic effect is ruined as soon as you have all of your burning questions answered. Gone are the endless possibilities and dreams that the film can evoke replaced with a stone wall of an answer that shuts off all thought and wonderment. Okay, this next question is from Damien. And his question is, you've answered one of my questions before in front of the red curtains, but what's behind the red curtains? Damien asks, what's behind the red curtains? It's a top secret thing, Damien. And, uh... Just leave it, leave it like that. For years and years, fans had heard about the so-called missing pieces from the film. 
a feature-length collection of deleted and extended scenes from Fire Walk With Me. Caught up in rights entanglements, for the longest time it seemed like they would never see the light of day, but in 2014, a feature-length collection of deleted material from Fire Walk With Me was released as a part of the Twin Peaks The Complete Mystery Blu-ray box set. It's obvious why a lot of the material in these scenes was cut, There are characters who do not otherwise interact with the main plot, and there are goofy comedy scenes that do not work well with the overall darker tone of the finished film. But there are also scenes that seem to be intentionally teasing fans who wanted answers in the wake of the season 2 finale. Most notably, there's a scene at the Great Northern Hotel with Cooper's evil doppelganger that follows on directly from the final scene of the season 2 finale, but offers literally nothing new to the point that you have to wonder why they went to all the trouble of setting up in the Great Northern set again and picking up continuity. Regardless of how you feel about the missing pieces overall, it is pretty amazing that there is a feature-length collection of deleted scenes for any film, let alone a David Lynch film. Lynch has always been firm that a filmmaker should have final cut, something that he doubled down on in the wake of the disaster that was his time working on Dune. So it is fascinating, if not confusing, to think that he signed off on so much extra material from the film being released to the public. There certainly is plenty of meat in there for fans looking for more clues to chew on. As we mentioned earlier, the film was absolutely flogged by critics and audiences alike. It received boos and jeers at its premiere at the Cannes Film Festival, and Lynch was so disheartened by the reception of his film that he didn't release another feature until Lost Highway in 1997. Christine McKenna writes in Room to Dream, Fire Walk With Me is a complex, challenging work, and Ray Wise and Cheryl Lee, who essentially carry the film, both give searing performances. Wise is nothing short of terrifying, and Lee is at turns sultry, baffled, and devastated. Nonetheless, audience members hissed and booed while it screened, and at a press conference that followed, Lynch encountered open hostility. Accompanied by Robert Engels, Angelo Badalamenti, Michael J. Anderson, and CB2000 producer Jean-Claude Fleury, Lynch was asked by a French reporter if his return to the world of Twin Peaks was the result of a lack of inspiration. Another reporter declared, Many would define you as a very perverse director. Would you agree? Quentin Tarantino was on hand and made the observation, he's disappeared so far up his own ass that I have no desire to see another David Lynch movie. New York Times critic Vincent Camby wrote, it's not the worst film ever made, it just seems like it. David Lynch's daughter, Jennifer Lynch, says about the film's reception, Fire Walk With Me was really important to Dad, and I remember his terrible confusion at how it was misunderstood. He started to have a lot of trouble with Hollywood bullshit at around that time. Lynch himself said about the flogging that the film received, I don't know why I loved Laura Palmer, but I just loved her, and I wanted to go back and see what she was going through during those days before she died. I wanted to stay in the world of Twin Peaks, but it was a strange time. People were put off Twin Peaks at that point, so it was a hard sell. The film has since been reappraised, however, otherwise we wouldn't still be talking about it today. Whatever was in the air in 1992 that stopped audiences from seeing the film for what it was has since dissipated, and Fire Walk With Me is rightly held up as one of Lynch's greatest achievements. My trip to see the film on the big screen confirmed this for me. It works at a gut level in all the ways that a good horror movie does, and leaves us in pieces having seen a young life taken far too soon by forces, both internal and external, that she never even came close to understanding. Before we take a look at the rest of 1992 in film, a question to ponder. In the final scene of the film, we see Laura in the Black Lodge being comforted by Coop, her face illuminated by flickering blue light as she smiles widely and cries tears of joy. We have never seen this type of light in the Lodge before in Twin Peaks continuity, so what is it exactly that we're seeing? What is it that Laura is seeing? The answer may in fact lie in the opening shot of the movie, and it's an answer that opens up the film all over again, inviting the breeze through the sycamore trees, inviting that lingering mystery back into our lives through the big screen. As our exploration into Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me comes to a close, 
Let's take a look at the year of cinema that was 1992 to further trace this film's place in film history. The film was a financial failure, making back a little over $4 million of its $10 million budget. The five biggest films of the year financially across the world were A Few Good Men, Lethal Weapon 3, Batman Returns, Home Alone 2 Lost in New York, and Aladdin. It's not hard to see, just looking at these films, how Firewalk With Me was reaching audiences at the wrong time for them to be receptive to it. Quentin Tarantino stormed onto the big screen with Reservoir Dogs. Francis Ford Coppola ended his time of studio filmmaking with the epic and audacious Dracula. A black horror icon was born with the release of Candyman. And Sam Raimi rounded out his Evil Dead trilogy with Army of Darkness. Baz Luhrmann makes his feature-length debut with Strictly Ballroom, and some no-name director called David Fincher cuts his teeth on the fascinating but disastrous Alien 3. Speaking about his experiences on the film, Fincher says, No one hated it more than me. To this day, no one hates it more than me. Other films that were released in the same month as Fire Walk With Me were Pet Cemetery 2, which was released on the same day, Death Becomes Her, and the Best Picture-winning film, Unforgiven, starring Clint Eastwood. Thanks for listening to the Blue Rose Film Podcast. Major sources used for this episode include Room to Dream by David Lynch and Christine McKenna, the special features on the Criterion Collection Blu-ray, Lynch on Lynch by Chris Rodley, and David and David, The Crossing Paths of Bowie and Lynch with Twin Peaks by Jack Watley for Far Out Magazine. There will be links to these sources in the show notes. You can support this podcast by leaving a review or a like, or even better, just sharing it with a friend. You can get in touch by emailing us at bluerose.filmreview at gmail.com or you can just find us on socials and get in touch there. Don't forget to check out the blog where you can read more pieces by myself about great films and continue the conversation. Thanks to Acast for hosting this podcast. I'll see you next time, but until then, don't forget, until that friend returns your Criterion Blu-ray of Lajete, it's their shout for coffee. Take care.